Well, it has been already a great time visiting with everybody and just being here, uh, meeting so many of you and sometimes reconnecting with uh, some of you. And uh, particularly with uh, the students, my students from expositors, uh, both past and, and present, although I'm not sure, Richard, we're missing something because there are several students who have not approached me. And so somehow we have not communicated to them the opportunity for those brownie points, you know, to come up and make a good impression. I want to remind you that I'm going straight from here back to my house and I will be grading your papers on Monday. So uh, I I have had a chance to see Aaron and Ben uh, for Cameron, Trevor and John. Those guys uh, have been good to see you, but some of you missing an opportunity here. For the rest of you, um, I just wanted to let you know that this is a, a, a lecture on hermeneutics. Uh, you may have thought that you were coming to a, a, a sermon or uh, maybe a uh, Sunday school lesson, but um, you're here listening in while I am kind of talking to those students a little bit about the issue of Bible interpretation, hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. I teach that at the seminary, and we go through uh, the nuts and bolts of how to do that. One of the thorny issues when it comes to Bible interpretation is the issue of how the Bible interprets itself or how the biblical writers use previous revelation. Do they interpret it the way that you and I would interpret it, or at least the way we would claim to want to interpret it? That that is a huge issue in uh, theological studies and uh, much controversy many, many things written on it, and create a lot of confusion and division. But this morning, we want to take, as, uh, as Pastor Richard said, we want to kind of take and pick up on a theme that we started to trace out last night, which is basically an Old Testament passage, Leviticus 18.5. And we want, we're tracing how that passage is used by subsequent writers, because it is, among others, one of the more controversial passages that many people claim are being misused by the biblical writers. In fact, one of the um, best books on this subject is actually a book that's entitled The Right Doctrine from the Wrong Texts. Sometimes you feel like that when you're reading the biblical writers. Yeah, yeah, I really, really appreciate that doctrine, but I'm not quite sure how he got that out of that particular passage. Well, that's what we're here talking about. And so, uh, you know, it uh, involves some sometimes technical uh, discussions, but really just trying to get into the flow of thought of the biblical writers. And we want to do that uh, as, uh, as Richard said, we started last night by just looking at Leviticus itself in its original uh, sort of meaning and context. And then we looked at how it was used by a later writer in the book of Ezekiel. Well, this morning we turn our attention to the New Testament and how in the New Testament, this same verse, which was used by those Old Testament writers or introduced and used by those Old Testament writers, is used by the Apostle Paul and particularly this morning in the book of Galatians. Uh, that'll be our focus for this morning. And then before we get there, I just, I just remind you of, of something that David declared in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is 
is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. There's a great blessing that the Scripture declares when the Lord does not count your iniquity or your sin against you. That is a blessing indeed. In fact, it's one, it is the greatest blessing. It pours over your life with so many other, all kinds of correlated, associated blessings that go along with that essential forgiveness. And uh, this morning, as we come to talk about the book of Galatians, and as we're talking about even tracing this theme of Leviticus 18.5, I want to just kind of back away for a moment and remind ourselves that's what we're talking about. We're talking about not just a verse of Scripture, but we're talking about this core central theological thread that runs all the way through the, 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 the Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. The great, the great and unspeakable blessing that God would hold none of your trespasses, none of your failures, none of your weaknesses, none of your sins against you. In theological terms, this is what we call justification, being declared just or being declared righteous, or we might say being pronounced right before God. It addresses the fundamental problem when you're not right or when you are unjust or when you're not measuring up to God. You're living wrong before Him. You're living in sin you're at opposite ends from God because you've broken His law, and having broken His law, you're very much not blessed. In fact, the Bible says you're cursed. You're not blessed. You're cursed. You're cursed if you fail to do what God's law demands. This is one of the central points here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. What we need as humanity, as men and women, what we need desperately is to be moved from being under God's curse to being under God's blessing, the blessing of forgiveness. And this sort of storyline of Scripture is Paul's concern as we come here to the book of Galatians. How do we move from being under God's curse to being under God's blessing? And how do we have the confidence that we are, in fact, there, that we have arrived at that place of blessing? Well, there was a group that had come into the churches of Galatia, and they had proposed an answer to that question, how do you move from being under the curse to being under the blessing? And their answer was a simple formula, believe in Jesus and keep the law. Believe in Jesus and embrace the Jewish laws and the Jewish ceremonies, particularly they were emphasizing, among other things, circumcision according to the Jewish law, and dietary laws. And in promoting that idea, they were appealing to the natural inclination of man to think that somehow we can ever do enough to please God, to make Him satisfied with our behavior, that somehow God expects this of us and that God somehow rewards it 
when you do relatively better than other people or relatively better than you used to do. Or in some cases, we convince ourselves that we have acted or behaved poorly, and so therefore we have to make up for it by a certain amount of suffering. We've done bad, and so when bad things come into our life and we kind of suffer a little bit for it, our conscience is in a sort of a peculiar way assuaged because we are convinced that we've balanced the scales a little bit. Some people actually inflict pain on themselves intentionally to try to atone or try to make up for their bad deeds. Because the bottom line is creatures, we're just geared towards believing that we live in a system of rewards and punishments when it comes to our relationship with God. There are some people who believe that they can balance out that reward and punishment scale. And these people had come into the Galatian church, and they were fostering this by telling people that what God really expects of you was not just that you believe in Jesus, but that you keep a bunch of rules, a bunch of laws that were dictated by the Old Testament. But for Paul, that formula was anathema. It was anathema. It was the worst thing that you could do. Because for him, it wasn't enough just to have Jesus in the equation. Jesus had to be, he had to be the totality of the answer. The only thing you needed was the work of Christ. And if you add anything else to that, it is only by way of subtraction In fact, it is cancellation. You add anything to the works of Christ, even one work to that, and you've made Christ of no effect. So against Paul, excuse me, against these people, Paul has a crystal clear message. There's absolutely no place for human achievement when it comes to this issue of justification. Absolutely no place for achievement in obtaining or maintaining a standing before God that would somehow merit His blessing. And to advance his argument, Paul makes an appeal to the supreme authority, which is Scripture, because he knows that it is the final arbiter of truth, and he also knows that it has the greatest apologetic value. Apologetics is basically the defense, a defense or an answer for the faith. And this is a critical issue now when it comes to the New Testament use of the old. Uh, We must grapple with the reality that for the biblical writers, Scripture had apologetic value. That is to say it was persuasive that it connected in some way, not just with fellow believers, but it connected with, with opponents, with enemies, and with skeptics. Meaning that there is in some way a universal understanding that the biblical writers felt like they could leverage in their, in their discussions or even in their argumentations about the, about the Scripture. Now, it's important to say because many people, whenever they come to this issue of New Testament use of the old, they just assume that the only way to understand any of this stuff is to sort of put on some spectacles 
some lenses, what they might call the Christological lenses or Christotelic lenses or any other sort of fancy word, but basically they're special lenses that the apostles had and no one else had, and that you read through those lenses and then, uh, you know, you can see what they are seeing. But that doesn't work when you're dealing with opponents. That doesn't work when you're dealing with skeptics because they haven't put on the lenses yet. In fact, they're trying to poke holes in your argument. But this is exactly what you see when you come to the New Testament. They use the Scripture against their opponents. They use it apologetically, which means that they, at least for themselves, did not understand that there was a need for some sort of special lens. They understood that the Scripture was sufficient, that it could stand on its own if they put, put forward an argument from the Scripture, that it could be persuasive and convincing. Now, you see this probably no better than anywhere else with a particular church in, in ancient Greece called Berea and the Berean people because we're told that Paul shows up in town and he's preaching to the Bereans. And, and when Paul goes home at night and when they go home at night, we're told that the Bereans searched the Scripture to see if what Paul was telling them was true. In other words, independent of any kind of sort of Christological presupposition or any sort of perspective from, from an apostolic writer, independent of any of those kinds of privileged positions, they were able to independently verify that what Paul was doing with the Scripture was legitimate. And it was that, that sufficiency and the uh, independent verification in the Scripture which had apologetic value and became persuasive for the, the Bereans, in fact, it says they were noble-minded because they did this, that they were able to critically evaluate and assess whether Paul was accurately and faithfully using the Scripture. So it's not surprising to us when we come to Galatians and Paul is dealing with his opponents that the way he deals with them is by the Scripture. He just goes to the Scripture, and particularly he goes to to one of the most prominent of all figures in the Scripture, which is Abraham. And he wants to show them, uh, first and foremost, through the message of Abraham's life, the father of the Jewish people, that the gospel never was intended to be enhanced or to be validated by, by, by your works or by your deeds. It was always, is always and always will be a subject only of faith. And then he confirms that with other scriptures, confirmation by Moses and by the prophets. Now, now we see this in Galatians chapter 3, and I'm just going to read for you the entire context, beginning in verse 5. He says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham and Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, 
those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, if you were with us last night, you, you already recognized that last phrase. The one who does them shall live by them. That's our, that's our passage from Leviticus 18 that we have now seen sort of, sort of drug all the way through the rest of the, uh, the Scripture. And now arriving here in Paul's argument, along with other passages of Scripture. And what he's doing here is he's, he's taking this doctrine of justification by faith alone, and he's confirming it through the testimony of several Old Testament passages, several here, all of which sort of center on three key points that support this doctrine of justification, the case of Abraham, the curse of the law, and the, the contrast of faith. We're going to try to get through all of these this morning. There's a lot here. But the case of Abraham, the curse of the law, and the contrast of faith. So you can be, begin just right there, and in particularly verse 6, when he looks at the case of Abraham. This is the centerpiece of his argument. He points out that Abraham was justified, or he was, he was, he was forgiven, he was declared to be righteous, long before the law was ever given and even before circumcision was given. In fact, Abraham was justified and forgiven in the eyes of God before he did anything. He was justified simply because he believed God. He had faith. Abraham, we're told in verse 6, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, counted to him as righteousness. You remember the story of Abraham. He grew up in a place called Ur, which is out sort of near Babylon or modern-day Iraq, out near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And he, his father had moved his family to a place called Haran, and he lived there. Uh, it was a pagan society, just like every other pagan society of the days. And, and Abraham was not much different than the sort of the typical run-of-the-mill pagan he was a product of his culture in that sense. But God comes to him while he's out in this pagan territory, in this pagan land. He appears to Abraham and he says, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. Nothing more. That's what he gets. Just go. God never told him where the land was or how it was going to be acquired, but Abraham obeyed. And he left. He left his homeland. He left his family. He left his possessions. We're told at this point that he was 75 years old when this happened. He had lived in Haran for a long time. He had put down roots there. He had been moderately successful. But at the age of 75, he packs up what he can carry and he ventures off into the desert because he believed God. He accepted what God said he took the information and he acted on it. Then in Genesis chapter 15, 
whenever he arrives in the land of Canaan, he'd been living there for now 10 years. I don't know where you were 10 years ago. A lot can happen in 10 years. But he's been now for 10 years, settled down in the, in the land of Canaan and uh, apparently hasn't really heard anything in the last 10 years. Just been sort of going and operating on faith that God was going to fulfill what he had promised back in chapter 12. But at this point, when he's 85 years old, in Genesis 15, God gives him a promise that he was going to make his descendants like the stars of the sky. Nothing could have seemed less likely to this 85-year-old man who had never had children. His wife was barren. Then to hear he was going to have descendants like the stars of the sky. But this, this is actually the passage in Genesis 15 that Paul quotes here because of Genesis 15, 6 says, He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous. He believed God in spite of the amazing improbability from a human perspective, in spite of how absurd it sounded. Abraham believed that even though he was 85 years old, that his wife would give birth and that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens. Now, it would be another 14 years before that promise was ever fulfilled. So he would go from being 85 years old to 99 years old. And again, all the while, uh, uh, we're not sure that he really heard much more from God. He just believed. He believed God. In other words, there was a key component of waiting. There was, this is where his faith was expressed. It was expressed in waiting on a promise that was to come. You know, the Scripture says faith is the uh, evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for. I might have switched that up, but that's essentially the idea of faith. It is, it's a waiting game, right? You're believing in things that are, haven't yet appeared. So, so this, is the, this is what Abraham did. In fact, it wasn't until he was 99 years old, we're told in Genesis 17, when he was actually circumcised, Genesis 17, 4, when Abraham was 99 years old, he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. So by virtue of every Jewish standard, Abraham would have been considered a pagan. He was born outside of the law. He was born outside of circumcision. He lived most of his life as an uncircumcised person. And more importantly, it was before the law was ever given and before he was ever circumcised that God had already credited him with righteousness. Now, this is one of the important things for biblical writers that they often do is they will draw conclusions from just chronological observation of the text. What happened first? What happened second? What happened third? They have theological importance for the, for the biblical writers. And this is just one example of this. There was a chronological insight. The fact that he wasn't circumcised, he wasn't under the law, and yet he was righteous according to God. And it was all based on his faith. He was imputed with righteousness, we would say. Which is, by the way, the same way that you would ever be righteous before God. 
It wouldn't be by keeping laws or doing any sort of outward things. It would be the exact same way. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how long you lived outside the church or outside Christianity or outside of God's law. It doesn't really matter. Any of that stuff is immaterial. If you want to be right with God, if you want to have the blessing of having your sins forgiven, the only way you'll ever do it is the same way Abraham did it, which is to believe. Just believe everything God spoke. This is not righteousness uh, of your perfect faith. Your faith may not be perfect. Abraham's wasn't perfect. He still had failings along the way. But it's a righteousness that comes by your faith. It's not of your perfect faith, but it's a perfection that comes by your faith. Your faith isn't the cause of your righteousness, but it is the instrument that allows God's mercy to flow into your life. Now, because of all that, Paul can tell them quite confidently in verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So, so this is what makes you now not only a child of God, but a child of Abraham. It is your faith. And notice how he connects it even beyond the Jewish people to, uh, who were the physical descendants of Abraham to anybody. He says in verse 8, the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So these Galatians are basically in good company if they're approaching God, trusting in nothing but His mercy alone to flow to them on the basis of faith, not, not trusting in circumcision or the law or any of those other things. If they're approaching God that way, they're in good company because they're doing it the same way Abraham did it. And Paul's saying that this gospel of salvation by faith was preached from the very beginning, from the Scripture. The Scripture was declaring this through the story of Abraham. So circumcision would not be the source of any person's blessing or salvation. The law would not be the source of any person's righteousness because it, was, it wouldn't be given for another 430 years long after Abraham had died. But so many... Jews had gotten all this turned upside down, and they had convinced themselves that the law was actually necessary, that it was a source of justification, which brings us to Paul's follow-up point here, which is the curse of the law. He moves from the case of Abraham to the curse of the law in verse 10. He begins to explain why their understanding of justification through the law couldn't be right according to the Scripture. He gives the evidence from the law, the words of the law itself. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because cursed is everyone who doesn't do, or he's quoting here from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, cursed is everyone who doesn't confirm the words of this law by doing them. So all those who want to rely on the works of the law, all who rely on their sincerity and their good intentions, the Scripture says you're basically under a curse if that's what you're relying on. Now this, as I said, came right from the heart of the law itself. This was presented to Israel from the very beginning. You have to keep it 
the whole thing or you're under a curse. Now, this comes actually from a ceremony in Deuteronomy 7, sort of a dramatic ceremony where the children of Israel had crossed over into the promised land and half the tribes of Israel stood on Mount Gerizim and half the tribes stood on Mount Ebal, the two sides of Shechem. And while they stood there, the Levites declared a list of blessings and curses. All those curses recorded in Deuteronomy 27, curses for perverting justice, curses for lying, curses for immorality, curses for profaning the Sabbath. And then right there at the very end of all those curses is this summary curse. It's almost as if, and, and if, I forgot to, if I forgot to say anything else, cursed is everyone if you don't confirm all the words of this book to do them. So, so let me just sort of throw that in as a blanket to just make sure I've covered all my bases. This idea would have been let's just say shocking, at least controversial, but shocking to Paul's opponents. In fact, it might be shocking to you because you might assume that God curses the bad people, not the people who are trying to keep the law. The, the, the people, you might assume that the people who God curses are the ones who maybe take the lives of other people or their particular particularly evil in the eyes of society, but the people who are trying to live by the law and trying to obey the law and do whatever the law says, you might assume that God would give them some credit and that He would in some way bless them, but the Bible actually says the exact opposite, that if you are relying on the law, trying to keep the law, trying to keep the rules, you're under a curse curse of God, even if you're putting every ounce of effort you can into doing all the right things. You're cursed because you can't do it perfectly. You can't do it perfectly. The law curses you. It curses you first and foremost because it demands something that you cannot give. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the law weakened by our flesh could never provide us with the escape from condemnation. So, this impossibility is presented to you through the law, and it brings you under a curse. It's impossible, by the way, for you to do it because the law is contrary to human nature. It goes against your natural inclinations and your natural desires in your heart. It asks you to do things that are unnatural for you in your flesh because your flesh has been corrupted like every other human being born in this world. So the law curses, first of all, because it demands something that you can't do in your flesh. And secondly, it curses because it doesn't recognize your good intentions. There's no provision for hoped or wished. I don't know if you have this discussion in your household, but we had it, I, I don't know how many times growing up, a child does something to one of their siblings, and when we call them in to talk to them about it, the answer is always, well, I didn't mean to do it. Well, that's sweet, but your, bro your brother's nose is still bleeding, and we have to explain to them over and over and over again, it doesn't matter what you meant to do, it matters what you did. That's what we're here to discuss. 
Not what you hoped for, not what you meant for, but what you did. And that's the way God is going to evaluate everybody. He's going to evaluate you not on what you meant to do, but on what you did or didn't do. There's no provision for partial credit, partial fulfillment of the law. There's only the demand that you do it with absolute perfection. So the law, it doesn't verify you. It doesn't declare you as good. The law leaves you, in fact, cursed. The law leaves you absolutely no benefit when standing before God. Now, to make the point crystal clear, Paul quotes now from two other Old Testament passages, and and this is where it starts to get even more thorny in terms of the New Testament use of the Old, because he quotes in verse 11 from Habakkuk and from, once again, Leviticus in verse 12. And he says, now it's evident, it's evident, it's, it's obvious No one is justified before God by the law, for, Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this brings us to the the third point in Paul's argument, which is the contrast with faith. You have the curse of the law, but now the, the blessing that comes by forgiveness, it comes by faith. And this is the contrast that Paul's setting before us. The law and faith are contradictory completely at odds with each other in terms of finding blessing and finding life. You can't argue from Scripture anything else Paul is saying. And the passage from Habakkuk in his mind proves that if anybody's going to be justified, if they're going to be saved, it's going to be by faith. And then the passage from Leviticus proves that you'll never be justified, you'll only be cursed by the law. Now, you might ask, well, why did he pull these two verses together? I mean, that's Habakkuk and Leviticus. I mean, how's he stringing all this stuff together? Well, most likely it's because both Habakkuk and Leviticus have a key word, live. You will live by faith. And in Leviticus, you will live by the law. We, we talked about this last night uh, in some detail. If you weren't here, I'll just kind of catch you up. The word live is, in its most basic sense, the opposite of die. We might sometimes talk about living in, in the sense of a good life or a quality life or a pros- uh, prosperous life, but that's not the main idea behind this Hebrew word that is in the Old Testament. It is contrasted particularly in the writings of Moses, it's contrasted with dying. It's contrasted with dying. So, so we might even translate this survive. You will survive by your faith and you will not survive by the law, meaning that you will be brought into judgment. You won't survive God's judgment without following this particular sort of pathway. And Paul proves this through these two opposing passages. First of all, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, which honestly most scholars, I don't know what the percentage is, maybe 90%, most scholars suggest that Paul is actually abusing this verse 
He is applying it in an unsensible way. In fact, they would suggest that Habakkuk actually says almost the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. That Habakkuk, if you read Habakkuk, they would say, Habakkuk is saying that righteousness actually comes by keeping the law, not by faith, or, or by their law-abiding character. Or at least Habakkuk is saying that you would escape judgment by keeping the law. Or some people would say that Habakkuk teaches that the righteous shall live by God's faithfulness, not by the person's individual faith. But on closer examination, that doesn't stand up under scrutiny. Paul was interpreting Habakkuk exactly as Habakkuk was intending to be interpreted and exactly in a way that teaches his central point. Now, there are a number of reasons that we come to that conclusion. First and foremost is just by contextual analysis, just looking at the broader context of the entire flow of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is really a series of of back and forths or dialogues between Habakkuk and God, kind of prayers and then answers or really prayers and then prophecies. So Habakkuk chapter 1, there's a prayer in verses 2 through 4, followed up by God's response in verses 5 through 11. And then another prayer in verse 12 through 17. And then there's a sort of interlude in verse 1 of chapter 2, but beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2, you have God's second response. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, you have this third prayer by Habakkuk followed by a hymn of praise or a hymn of faith by Habakkuk. That's kind of the big picture of those three chapters in Habakkuk. And of course, our focus is in the second part of that. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can go back to the book of Habakkuk. It would be helpful maybe for you to be looking at it while we're talking about it. Habakkuk chapter 2, it, it begins it begins with this response from God. He's responding to the prayer from chapter 1, and he begins with this response in verses 2 through 3, talking about a vision, a vision which he says awaits its appointed time, and it hastens or testifies to the end. If, if it seems slow, he says, wait for it, it surely will come, it will not delay. Now, that is the first of, of some stanzas, uh, if you will, that this, this response, this prophecy is broken down into. So it begins with this declaration of a vision that's coming but needs to be waited for. That's followed up with a second stanza that makes a contrast here, a contrast between an unnamed persona in verse 4 who is puffed up in his soul. By the way, the word soul there is the same word that you find in verse 5 that is translated greed or in some translations appetite. The word has sort of a, a broad range of meanings. So it would be possible maybe to think in verse 4 about a puffed up soul. It would be possible to think about someone with a swollen appetite. 
instead of a puffed-up soul, if that makes sense. In fact, this is kind of the description that God gives of this person in verse 5. His greed or his appetite is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. So you begin to get a picture of this person with an insatiable appetite or insatiable greed, like death, it's always wanting more. It's claiming new things, new lives, new people every day. The grave is always taking someone else. It never seems to stop. And he says this is this unnamed person. He describes this insatiable greed in verse 4 as not right. It's, in other words, it's not just for him to be this way. And then at the end of verse 5, he reveals a little more, saying this, this unnamed person, he gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And so we begin to realize he seems to be talking about the Babylonians, I mean, they're the ones that sort of are the uh, sort of centerpiece of, uh, of Bacchus' whole prayer life here and his complaint. It was the Babylonians, and, and they were the wicked ones who had an insatiable greed to gobble up other nations and other peoples. The rest of verse 4 is actually our, our key verse here. It contrasts this puffed-up person with the righteous person who will live by his faith. The, the, the Hebrew word is immuna. So, so, so the arrogant person lives by greed that is never satisfied, and the righteous person lives by his immuna, his faith, and is rewarded or satisfied because of that. Now, the majority of people, when they read this, they, um, they take that word, immuna, and they suggest that this word means faithfulness. Not faith, it means faithfulness, which means your, 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 your behavior, your activity. And they would say that this refers to either God's faithfulness or maybe in some sense the reliability of the vision but in fact, when you look at the verse, you kind of understand that there's a contrast being made, a contrast between an arrogant man who lives by his greed and a righteous man who lives by his faith. So, so in the context, in terms of the antecedent, if you will, the nearest sort of reference for this immuna is not God or the vision, it is the man, the individual. It's actually the righteous one who is living by his, by his immuna. This is because why? He believes the vision. Back in verse 3, he is the one who is waiting on this deliverance from the wicked one who is devouring everybody. He wants to be delivered from this treacherous sort of force and influence, or we would say he wants to survive. He wants to live. The same word, by the way, is Paul's using, and we saw used in Leviticus 18.5. He wants to be delivered. And it's in the context of trusting in this vision where this word immuna is defined. 
Words are always defined not by dictionaries, but by context. How's it being used here? And, and I believe the context makes it most sense if you're talking about the person's individual trust and individual faith. In fact, if Habakkuk wanted to talk about the individual's faith, immuna would have been the natural word for him to use. One Hebrew scholar actually notes this, a Hebrew scholar named James Barr. He actually says, there is no word in the, in the Old Testament in Hebrew meaning faith. That is to say, there's no noun form representing nominally the act indicating the verb he believed. In fact, this is widely known, he says, among scholars. So, this particular guy is saying, if, if, if Habakkuk wanted to talk about this act of believing in Hebrew, this would have been one of the few words he had to choose from. There was another word, miftah, which means trust, that he might have used. But Habakkuk is using this word, and he's actually combining it with another word, righteous, sedekah. So he's talking about the righteous believing and the two things about those words, righteous and believing, tzedakah and immuna, is they're actually the same two words which are combined in Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abraham, immuna, believed God, and it was credited to him as tzedakah, righteousness, or tzedek. So if Habakkuk here is trying to draw a link with Abraham's belief and Abraham's patient waiting on God, he would have had few choices if he wanted to kind of make that connection other than to use the terminology right there. And if he wanted to encourage his readers to reflect on the faith that Abraham had waiting all of those years for the promise of this child who was to come to him, if he wanted to connect them back with those thoughts, then one of the most natural ways for him to do it would have been to use those key words out of Genesis 15, 6, immuna and sedek, faith and righteousness. Now, this might explain why in um, one of the commentaries, the Pesher commentaries from the Dead Sea Scrolls, you may not know what that is. That's a group of documents that were unearthed in Israel back in the uh, late 40s. And it was a treasure trove of insight into Jewish life and thinking because they had not only copies of Scripture, but they had commentaries. And one of these particular commentaries comments on Habakkuk 2.4, and it comments on it speaking about individual faith. That's the way it understands this word. It talks about freeing the house of Israel from judgment because, among other things, they have faith in their teacher of righteousness. It's not translating it as faithfulness or performance or any of those other things that modern scholars would tell us. It was translating it exactly the way Paul translated it. By the way, whenever they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek New Testament, they used a word, pistis, which can mean either faith or faithful, but it certainly carried that idea of individual faith 
And uh, both Paul and this sort of community of, of Bible commentators in, in the uh, deserts of Israel understood Habakkuk to be talking about individual faith. And when you combine that with the fact that the writer of Hebrews at the end of Hebrews chapter 10 also quotes from Habakkuk, now you have a threefold witness because he says that faith is an individual act. It's individual faith. He quotes that at the end of Hebrews 10 and then immediately turns around and says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So he clearly understood that the message of Habakkuk was the need to believe in something, a vision that wasn't yet seen. The vision of verse 3 in Habakkuk chapter 2. So contrary to what most scholars want to suggest, Paul's not applying Habakkuk in some unsensible way. He's not, uh, he's not taking Habakkuk who is actually saying, well, you need to be faithful to the law if you want to have any kind of hope of escaping. You need to follow the works of the law. No, he's saying the same thing. Paul is saying the same thing that Habakkuk was saying. The righteous will survive. They will live. They will escape judgment they won't perish. They will live by their faith. Now, that sets Paul up to talk about Leviticus 18.5, which, again, if you were here last night, you, you're familiar with this. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it. People, again, would say that Paul is missing the point. He's transforming the message of Levit Leviticus 18.5 because, as we said last night, everyone thinks Leviticus 18.5 is talking about you know, uh, the, uh, if a man does the law, he will live by it. And they all think that means that if a person does the law, he will prosper, he'll be blessed. No, it doesn't mean that. It means he will survive if he does the law. And by implication, if he doesn't do the law, he won't survive. He will be cursed. And this is what Paul is highlighting here. He's highlighting this contrast between those who live or survive or escape judgment by faith and those who will not escape judgment because they can't keep the law. They won't live, he says here in Galatians. Um, where did Paul get this? Well, he got it by reading the Old Testament. He got it by just simply seeing the way Ezekiel uses Leviticus 18.5 or the way Habakkuk seems to be using Genesis 15.6. He got it. He learned his interpretation, not by some sort of special Christological moment. He learned it from people who were living before Christ ever arrived on earth. He, he learned it by reading the prophets and the way that they dealt with the Old Testament. And they were confirming exactly everything that Paul was preaching. And by the way, this, this whole point that Paul's making, that it is by faith that you escape judgment, Paul is obviously extending that beyond just some sort of temporal judgment from Babylon or, or something like that. He's obviously extending this to the idea of not just life in this world, but eternal life 
you will survive not just judgment in a temporal sense, in an earthly sense, like Israel might have been hoping to do, but you will survive eschatologically at the final judgment of God. Well, is that legitimate? For him to make that conclusion? Habakkuk might have been talking about temporal surviving Babylon. Well, in fact, Habakkuk himself seems to envision not just temporal survival, but eternal survival. Because he actually says, you're going to see, if you live by faith in this vision, you're going to see it fulfilled. He, he was giving this, this prophecy uh, in the year 600 or so, and it wouldn't be fulfilled for another 60 years. So, so, so very few people reading his prophecy would have even survived physically to see it and to have this fulfillment of their faith. But more importantly, he goes on to say that a part of this vision in Habakkuk 2.14 was that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. In other words, you're going to see this vision fulfilled And along with it, you're going to see a worldwide kingdom of of our Lord, if you have faith. So Habakkuk was already taking the principle from, from, from Abraham and from Leviticus. He was already extending that out, not only applying it to his own day, to his own people, but even to the eschatological future. And so Paul's telling them, On the basis of Scripture, on the argument of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, I want to tell you, no one who relies on the works of the law will be saved. That's not just something I invented as an apostle. It's not just something that I have by special insight. That is the message of the Bible. That's the message of the law and the prophets, and you can confirm it. We will have in a moment a chance to hear that that's not the end. Dr. Chow will speak to us about another passage of Scripture where Paul once again uses this same text, the same passage to continue to pound home, drive home the point. The Scripture is reliable. The Scripture is clear. The Scripture is consistent. And the Scripture is something that you yourself can read and understand the message of God by. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are grateful for this time. Thank you again for our opportunity to look into your word and to see its clarity. We're so grateful that uh, you have given it to us. And indeed, it is your spirit who has opened our eyes so that we accept its truth. But it is truth that is not dependent on us accepting it. It stands Whether we accept it, whether we believe it or not, it stands. It proclaims and it is clear to all who encounter it, and we are held to account. Because of all those things, Lord, we know our sin. We know our weaknesses and our failures. And we're so grateful that your Scripture declares to us that we don't need to live under that curse. We can live. We can survive We can escape condemnation because of faith.
faith. Thank you, Lord, for that gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Shane. What an outstanding job. Amen. We're going to now take a break. Uh, there are refreshments out the front door, out the side door, just like last night, and we'll gather for worship at 1030.